morning, church. Good morning. My name is Andrea. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City, and I want to welcome you again uh, to our service this morning. I'm glad you're joining us, whether you're here in Minor or you're joining us on YouTube. Welcome. Um, I, I have a, a poll question this morning that I'm just curious about uh, to get us started this morning. By show of hands, uh, who here played an instrument as a kid? And I said, whoa, okay, that was way more than I thought. Um, played, yeah, just played the instrument. Um, what instruments did you play? Just call them out. Euphonium. A, a what now? A euphonium. I don't know what that is. A recorder? Thank you. Important. Yeah? Over here? What'd you play? I played the drums. The, dr the drums? Okay, a snare drum. Okay. <laughs> One snare drum. <laughs> Bless your parents. Bless them. Great, great. Um, I played the piano growing up for many years. Uh, I, I did like competitions. I did like the official assessments. Um, I, I did all of that. But I, listen, I was terrible. Not because I don't think that I like could do it. It's just because I was really terrible at practicing. Like I just hated. I still hate practicing. Just like anything. Just boo. Um, I, I remember like as a kid, I really thought that I would just be able to get up there and just like BS my way through something. Um, but my piano teacher and the judges definitely knew that I had not practiced. Um, and you may have noticed that I no longer play the keys because uh, I quit. Um, no more practice for me. I didn't want to practice um, that. The last time that I remember trying to get away with playing the keys with no practice uh, was in college. So I was dating Drew who's here, because uh, now we're married. Um, but I, we were just dating, and Drew was a music major in college. And um, he had to put together a senior recital. So he did piano performance. Is that what it was, basically what it was called? He, so he had to put together this, this senior recital. And it mostly featured him, OK? But he also wanted to include and was in, invited to like, include some other people in his life. Um, so he asked me if I would play um, a movement out of Mozart's 40th Symphony as a piano duet with him. Um, it, it's not a horribly like, difficult duet. And I was still kind of fresh from like, having played piano in high school. And I just loved him so much. So I said yes. Um, but then there was this practicing thing. So I think maybe you know like, maybe the where this is going. It was like the week, the week before the recital. And I practiced like, a little bit. Um, but I'm definitely like feeling overconfident and I think what I can do with the amount of practice that I had done. And Drew and I go into like one of the school's rehearsal rooms and we try this, <laughs> this piano duet together and it is a disaster. It is bad. It's really bad. Um, and by it's bad, I mean I was really bad. Drew was great. I mean it was so bad that we were panicking. I was definitely panicking. Um, it was so bad that we called Drew's dad and asked him at the last minute, it's like the week of the recital, if he would play the duet with Drew instead of me, which he did. Thank you, Vinny. Um, <laughs> saved me from a bunch of embarrassment. Um, I think that Drew has forgiven me. It's OK. <laughs> great. Great. 15 years. Great. Um, but yeah, practice has always been a struggle for me. Um, as a side note, related, I dreamt as a child of being an Olympic Gymnast, you see where this no practice thing has <coughs> gotten me. Here we are. 
but practice is hard. And it's frustrating to me because in order to learn how to do something, we have to practice it. There is this intention in practicing something. We don't become able to do or be the thing that we're aiming for if we don't practice. This is hard for me. We're in this new series. This is week two. This is a series called Living the Resurrection, and we're spending these next few weeks trying to better understand what it means to live the resurrection or, as Wendell Berry writes, how to practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. We are also in the liturgical season uh, that's known as Eastertide. Um, it's the season between Easter Sunday, which we uh, celebrated a few weeks ago, and Pentecost Sunday, which is in June. I think that um, it's interesting that we tend to put a lot of emphasis on the season before Eastertide, which is Lent, um, and less on this one, on Eastertide. In Lent, we intentionally take the time to understand what Jesus' death means. Um, that's really important. But in Eastertide, we have the opportunity to better understand what Jesus' resurrection means, and as an Easter people, to better understand what Jesus' resurrection means for us. That's living the resurrection. We have an opportunity to practice resurrection. I think one of the hopes of, of, for us in this series is to name and break through this contradiction that happens to us so often in the church where we, we speak with great affirmation about the power and about the possibility of God's resurrected life, but then we don't embrace it in our everyday lives. It's right for us to ask why we continue to understand the possibility and power of the resurrection as only for Jesus, or as a lot of American Christian tradition has taught, only for us sometime later in the future. The gospel in a lot of ways has been treated like an escape hatch, like it's that toxic hope that says, just hold tight, just make it through, and what's happening now doesn't really matter, because later, it's all going to be different. But the restoration of the gospel is not an escape. It's not a free pass to just like get through life with our eyes closed to reality. The gospel is an invitation to actively participate in the restoration of all things and to be sustained by the strength that comes from the resurrection. Is there a coming day that we hope for when the kingdom of God fully comes in all of its power? Yes. Yes and amen, yes. Come, Lord Jesus. And the gospel has good news for us now, not just for later, sometime in the future. This season, this series is about how the resurrection of Jesus intersects with history, how it intersects with our lives, with our world. And it's an invitation for us as a community to discover how we're invited into the resurrection life and what it means to practice resurrection. Practicing resurrection has everything to do with investing our lives, with committing our whole selves to being in the places where people yearn for new life. A commentary I read this week described it as being formed into a people who take the power of resurrection life seriously and move our bodies and our resources into places where that power can bring about new life. That's practicing resurrection. And as Justin preached last week, we are invited to experience resurrection, to practice it, Jesus's and our own, through the presence of Jesus, through the Spirit, 
and we are given power to accomplish the purposes of Jesus with his people. So to dig into this a little deeper and a little bit more practically, our anchoring framework through this series for the next few weeks is Christ City's core values. So there are five. Justice, inclusion, presence, prayer, and creativity. And as we seek to practice resurrection, re resurrection these are both values and, and practices that describe who we are and who we long to be as people who want to see the kingdom of God in every life and in every sphere of life, specifically in the context of our church and specifically in, the, in our location in this city. And so today, we're seeking to understand what it means to live the resurrection, to practice resurrection, by looking at what it means to pursue and practice justice. Justice. I think the term justice can mean different things to different people. It has many different definitions depending on who you're talking to. I think for some it might, um, it might be defined as taking wealth from those who have too much. Um, it could mean um, uh, I'm not getting what I deserve or we are not getting what we deserve and we are owed something. Um, for some people it boils down to uh, people who do bad things being punished. It can be hard to define justice, um, particularly as our society defines it. I feel like when we look at our, what we call our justice systems, they often look and act like unjust systems that are backed by unchecked power. But God's idea of justice, what we might call resurrection justice, is so much bigger. It's so much more expansive than, than the, these ways that we have tried to define and get our minds around what justice is. Resurrection justice isn't just about preventing or punishing crime or protecting innocent people. That's what we would define as retributive justice. And it also isn't just about fairness for all. It isn't just about everybody having a piece of the pie, everybody having a seat at the table. Resurrection justice does encompass those things, but it also includes restoration. It includes restorative justice. And we see this throughout scripture. It's woven through the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. You can see it in the Psalms. It's in the Old Testament prophets. It's in Jesus's ministry and the gospel accounts. It's in the New Testament epistles. We see this consistent message that justice is not only about retribution or distribution, but in its fullness, justice flows from the very character of God. And it's about restoring God's original intention for all people and for all creation to flourish. Resurrection justice is understood only when we recognize that it comes from and is sustained by who God is. Now, we don't have the time this morning for an exhaustive word study. Sorry, David Hood. But um, <laughs> suffice to say, there are four words in the Bible. There's two in Hebrew and two in Greek that get translated into English as justice. And they appear hundreds of times throughout scripture. Though sometimes they're not just translated as justice. They can be translated into English as different things. So sometimes you'll see these words translated as justice. Sometimes you'll see them translated as judgment, judge, rightness, righteousness. All kind of, the English words kind of fit, fit all. Or that's how we, we've used it. We lose a lot, though, in these translation differences. 
in the case of understanding biblical justice, okay, it's common to hear the words that we translate as justice and righteousness as two separate things. Justice like refers to righting wrongs in a public way. And then righteousness referring to God's character, God's perfect rightness, or even um, the internal piety in human beings, righteousness. But what happens here is this dichotomy denies us the full picture of what God's justice is and what God's justice does. These two things can actually not be separated from one another. If we separate our understanding of justice from the context of God's righteousness, we've lost the meaning of it. If righteousness means bringing something into conformity with the character of God, then justice is the practical application of righteousness. The two are intertwined. You can't extricate them from one another. You can't extricate either one from the character of God. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 6, Jesus commands his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Okay? This is another instance where there's a word that's used in Greek, and it's translated as righteousness. And in that, we, have, we seem to have lost the fullness of the meaning of what Jesus is saying. So the Greek word is dikalsune. This is what it looks like. Its definition encompasses this intertwining of justice and righteousness, even though it's translated sometimes into English as one or the other. We are commanded by Jesus to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and justice. That's a command. And that's what we mean when we're talking about resurrection justice. Our text today comes uh, from the book of Acts again. Um, It shows the early church trying to do what we're trying to do. Y'all, we're just trying to understand what that means. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? What does it mean to seek God's righteousness and justice? What does it mean to do justice as a resurrection practice and as a community? So like Justin mentioned last week, the book of Acts is a continuation of the gospel of Luke. So it picks up right at the ascension of Jesus. So Jesus has been uh, crucified. He's been dead. He has resurrected. And in the book of Acts, he promises the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then he sends out the disciples with a commissioning. And this group of people are left behind. And they're left to consider this same thing, again, that we're trying to consider. What now? What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? How does it inform how we live? What does it mean to follow Jesus and to live into resurrection with those who are left here together? This community in Acts was learning that resurrection life both offers something to us and requires something from us. And they were learning to follow the Spirit. It was new for them. It was new. But that's resonant with us too, isn't it? Maybe we can get more familiar with recognizing that the Spirit is moving. I hope that's what we're doing here. But the Spirit is always taking us somewhere new. Practicing resurrection is a process. We walk with the Spirit and we try to figure it out. 
it wasn't too different for the early church. That gap between us and them this morning may not be as large as we think. So they're just trying to figure it out. So in Acts, after Pentecost, in chapter 2, and Peter's address to the crowd in Jerusalem, the church was growing. Acts 2 says that people were joining their community daily. Daily. They were learning to be in a resurrection community together. They were learning um, to share their belongings. They were helping one another. They were breaking bread together in one another's homes. They were witnessing people be healed, and, and they were dealing with persecution together. There's growth here, there's beauty, there's newness, and there's also difficulty. I think that, I also resonate with that. And this is where we come to in our passage for today. This is chapter, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples. So we've got this brand new church. They're learning to live together in community, and they are presented with a problem. There's this group of widows with a certain background. They're being neglected, while other widows of a different background are being cared for. So what is being described in our passage today is an instance of inequity and injustice. So these two groups of widows identified as Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews. And they were culturally and ethnically different. They were different linguistically. Um, there was a difference in values. There were varying degrees of living under oppression or living near seats of influence. But as people committed to living the resurrection with a shared faith in Jesus, they were trying to hold together in this new community. Widows were already at a disadvantage in a patriarchal society. And the text indicates that the Hebraic Jewish widows were being preferenced and that the Hellenist widows were being marginalized. They were being disadvantaged. They were being neglected in the life of this new covenant community. So that's the situation that's facing the emerging church. This is just seasons after Jesus' ascension in the midst of expansion and attraction, in the midst of persecution and miracles, comes this, this recognition that there's division, there's marginalization, there's pain, there's discrimination. There is injustice. And it is. It's rightly called out by the group that's being discriminated against, and it's taken seriously by the group doing the discriminating. In keeping line with Jesus and trying to practice resurrection, the community is having to confront injustice. So injustice at its core is when something dies. Injustice is when something dies, whether that's the dignity of people, the rights of people, the image of godness in someone. When someone's person or body is not upheld as made in the image of God, but instead it is diminished, it is like death. To practice resurrection, the community is charged with confronting this injustice. Because resurrection only takes place where death has occurred. Injustice is a friend and an accomplice to our greatest enemy, which is death. Friends, I don't have to tell you that we live in a world full of death, yeah. figurative and literal. 
What we see around us every day, gun violence, war, oppression, utter disregard for human life, homelessness, exploitation, I could go on and on, and so could you. It smells like death. It's like we're living in a tomb. And I feel like this is the hard part of living the resurrection. It is so closely tied to death. We cannot experience resurrection without experiencing death. And if we're going to practice resurrection justice, we are going to have to recognize the tomb that we find ourselves in and act. The Hellenistic widows call out the injustice that is occurring, and the Hebrews point it out to everybody, and that's good. Naming injustice is a super important part of making it right, but it's not the whole thing. If we stop there, if we name the death, but that's it, that's not resurrection justice. That's like being in a pitch dark room where you can't see anything and, and you just say, it's dark in here, I can't see, over and over again. But you never try to find the light switch. It's sad that we have a tendency to do this. We have this tendency, this pull to make ourselves at home in the tomb, in the dark death places. As much as we want to say we want Easter, we say that, right? We're an Easter people. That's what we want. We want to skip Good Friday. Like, we want to skip Saturday. We want to get to Easter. As much as we say that we want that, what we often choose to do is stay in the tomb. It can seem less costly. It can seem easier even to not deal with this whole resurrection thing. For those with access to power and privilege, those who have the opportunity to enact injustice to act unjustly it can be easier to stay in the tomb because it's dark the realities of the tomb aren't seen and because it's dark they don't have to be seen people at the top often have the means to make the tomb feel pretty comfortable particularly when they're benefiting from the death of others for those who are at the bottom the ones who pay the price of injustice with their dignity, with their humanity, with their very lives, it can feel like a matter of survival to stay in the tomb. Hope becomes much too costly, or it seems completely impossible to imagine that there might be light on the other side of the stone. We're in the tomb. May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Happy APA Heritage Month. Go learn about us. Come on. Mm. I was doing some reading uh, this week about uh, Japanese internment in the United States. Um, the placement of over 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry into concentration camps during the Second World War in the United States out of this fear that um, maybe they would somehow retaliate against the U.S. after the events of Pearl Harbor. And I came across the poetry of a woman named Mitsuye Yamada. This is her. So Mitsuye was taken to an internment camp with her family in 1942 after her father was wrongfully accused of spying. She was there as a teenager. And during her time there, she wrote poems. And there's one that was particularly uh, significant to me as I studied this week. Um, this poem is called Playing Cards with the Jailer. I'm going to read it to you. A brief metallic sound, 
jars. The quiet night air hangs in my ears. I am playing cards with the jailer who shifts his ample body in his chair while I fix my smile on his cards, waiting. My eyes unfocused on the floor, behind him where a set of keys, spider-like, begins to creep slowly across the room. Come on, come on, your play, I say. To distract him, I tap the table. Wait. With a wide gesture, he picks up the keys, hangs them back on the hook, yawns. The inmates will keep trying, will keep trying. Their collective minds pull the keys, only halfway across the room each time. The world comes awake in the morning to a stupor. My brown calloused hands guard two queens and an ace. My polished pink nails shine in the almost light. I have been playing cards with jailers for too many years. This poem, I think, is just, it highlights and explains that for both the privileged and the oppressed, there are reasons that we sit in the tomb of injustice. We distract ourselves by playing cards with one another. We sit in the tomb, whether it's being forced to play cards with those in charge as a matter of survival, or whether it's enjoying the benefits of the, ignorance, of the ignorance that the darkness justifies. We can choose to stay in the tomb. And church, to our shame, we do. We do, that's what we choose. But resurrection justice isn't about just naming that. It's not just about naming the way that we stay in the tomb. It's not just about naming injustice or naming the darkness of the tomb that we're in. That's not the whole thing. Resurrection justice is choosing to follow Jesus out of the tomb, and it's not leaving anybody else behind in there either. It's choosing to follow Jesus out of the tomb and not leaving anybody behind. When we return to our text in Acts, we see that injustice wasn't just named, it was dealt with. This is verse 2. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we for our part will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. And what they said pleased the whole community. And they chose seven men, um, and they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to spread. And the number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here is where resurrection and death meet in this story. Those that are being overlooked unjustly take the risk to name what's happening as injustice. They use the agency that's available to them and risk it. And then those that have the power to influence the system and the structure of the community that they're in, they all steward their power in order to make it right. Resurrection takes place where death has occurred and where injustice has happened. And that's a hard spot for us to sit in. That's a hard place to be in. 
But in order to live the resurrection, in order to practice it, we have to put ourselves in places of death and injustice. We have to name them as such, and then we have to proclaim life over them. We don't just stop at naming death. It's proclaiming life with our words and with our action. That's enacting resurrection justice. It's not just thoughts and prayers. It's words. It's actions. It's using the agency that we have to proclaim to a dying world that it can be resurrected, that we don't have to stay in the tomb. We don't just name the injustices of gun violence and poverty and cycles of family dysfunction. We don't just name racial oppression and homelessness and broken relationships. We do name them, yes. We name them, but we are to enact justice. We are called to participate in the ways that God is restoring. We do that in the places where we name that something is dead and it shouldn't be. Maybe this is what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. We follow Jesus to death. The cross was an instrument of death. We take it up and we follow Jesus to death, yes, but also to resurrection. And we don't do this in a way that dismisses death or the power that death has. Carrying a cross is a real weight. We, We can say, 100% clear that death has power in this world. And it wields it really well. We we don't dismiss that. There is a toxic way to proclaim hope. You know that. There's There's a toxic way to proclaim hope when we dismiss the reality of others in exchange for false unity. That's that's peacekeeping. But resurrection justice is not about peacekeeping, it's about peacemaking. And the justice of God proclaims that death does not have the last word and that through Jesus, where there is death, there can be resurrection. To practice resurrection is to put our whole lives on the line because we believe that death will not have the last word, that it is not the final act, that when we take up the cross and we march to death with Jesus, that that's not the end. And we don't do this in our own power. We do this through the power of Jesus and his resurrection. Because of his resurrection, we can proclaim that Jesus rules and that Jesus reigns and that in him there can be restoration and reconciliation and there can be righteousness and justice in every life and in every sphere of life. When we say, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? We do it in resistance to death and all of death's friends, not because death doesn't have power in the world, but because the resurrection power of Jesus is stronger and that our lives bear witness to it. This is the foundation of our pursuit and our practice of resurrection justice. We sell ourselves short when we define justice as anything else. This is why we advocate for affordable housing. It's why we protest unjust policies. It's why we stand up and why we speak out about the ways that racism and sexism and classism, all the isms unjustly affect our lives and the lives of others. It's why we examine ourselves and our lives. It's why we examine the systems and the structures that we live within. 
It's why we take the time and intention to consider our own environmental and gentrification footprint. It's why we resist. It's why we lament. It's why we pray together each week for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven, in us and around us. We are praying for resurrection justice to not just be passively received, but we are looking to actively participate in it in the various contexts and social locations that we find ourselves in. It's a call to participate. Now look, I know we could spend an entire series on just this. There's a lot that I'm leaving out today and that's okay. We could spend an entire series on how to apply each one of these core values that we're gonna be looking at in the next few weeks. I acknowledge that this has been higher level today, higher level stuff. We're talking about this big, big idea of what resurrection justice is. But friends, the application piece, which is what I know we're all itching for right now, is for you to sort out. It's for us to sort out together. What needs resurrecting? Where would we name death around and in us? What would resurrection look like in those places? Those are the questions, friends, and our efforts to work towards those answers is practicing justice. What needs resurrecting? What around us would we name as death? And what would resurrection look like in those places? This is how we practice justice. For those in this community who have access to power and privilege, how are you positioning yourself to be in death places where resurrection is needed? You can't practice justice if you can't name death, and you, can't name, you cannot name what you choose to ignore. How are you positioning yourself to be in death places where resurrection is needed? For those in this community who are hard-pressed, those for whom survival becomes the main issue because of the lack of power and the lack of privilege that is available to you by the many systems and structures that oppress. I encourage you to keep calling out injustice where you can. And I say to you, know that your community is called to name the way injustice mars you too. And you hold us to it. That's practicing justice, that's enacting justice. For those in this community who sit in both spaces, say that's a good number of us, practicing resurrection can start with naming those intersections of injustice and privilege. It's our work to sort out the complicated reasons why we stay in the tomb. Friends, Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And Jesus calls for us to follow him out of the tomb too. I read a quote this week that said, resurrection looks like unexpected life in those places and events and people we thought were dead and buried. Resurrection looks like unexpected life in those places and events and people we thought were dead and buried. Friends, as we practice resurrection, 
as we enact resurrection justice in the ways that we are called to. We follow Jesus to death and we follow Jesus to life. Practicing resurrection is asking, where is God leading us into new life? Practicing justice is following Jesus out of the tomb and not leaving anybody behind. And this is my prayer for us this morning. Church, may we know the power of the risen Christ now and every day. May we live into the resurrection. Let me pray for us. God, I, I'm, I'm not even sure how to pray this morning. Um, because I feel so many different pulls. And um, God, I ask in this time that you would be speaking to us about the ways that we choose to stay in the tomb. God, in your spirit, would you address in us our hesitations to leave the dark death places? I don't understand it, God. Would you help us, Lord, to live in the power of your resurrection? Would you help us, God, to see where you are moving? Would you help us to answer the question of where are you leading us into new life? And God, would you give us the strength and the courage to follow? Don't let us stay in the tomb, God. Lead us out.